you have a Bible, you can open to Philippians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 10 through 20. Um, the text is printed in the bulletin, but not on the PowerPoint. And then um, we're probably going to bounce around quite a bit in the scriptures, so it helps if you have a Bible. Um, if, if you don't have one, again, there are some available uh, in the back. So, brief recap. Um, we've been in a series on worship. We're probably close to halfway done. I haven't looked, but I, it's pretty close. Um, uh, basically, we're talking about why we do the things we do on Sunday mornings. Um, and we've uh, talked about several of the kind of essential aspects of worship that kind of permeate the whole thing, that uh, kind of have these overarching effects on the particular elements of worship that we uh, observe during Sundays. But, you know, things, uh, go through them again real quick, um, things like Revelation is the basis for our worship. We don't just do what we feel like doing. We uh, do what God says he wants uh, our worship to look like. And worship is Trinitarian in nature. nature. Remember, uh, worship is um, the gift of participation through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Um, a quote from Torrance again. Uh, so it's, it's highly relational. It's conversational. Um, worship is incarnational in focus. So that means we uh, spend a lot of time thinking and speaking and singing about Christ and the gospel, uh, grace that's come to us through the Son of God becoming a man and uh, his life and his works on our behalf. Um, and then because worship is Trinitarian and incarnational, then um, these, are, uh, these, th these are expressions of God's love. Uh, his being is love. His, all of his actions are love. And so um, uh, love then should shape our worship. Love uh, should cause us to consider each other as we are in worship together. And then we started looking at the particular elements. So, um, you know, the first thing that we do in, in worship is we're called to worship, that uh, God is the one who initiates the relationship with us, and so everything that we do is a response to him. Um, gives it that kind of back-and-forth uh, conversational aspect to so many of the, the elements of our worship, and that should be true of all of our lives. Everything that we do is a response to God's grace to us, not trying to earn his favor, not try, trying to gain his grace. And then um, last week we looked at God's uh, mercy, which enables us to then respond in the confession of our sins, to open ourselves uh, to him in that way. And then uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, how um, our response to the gospel uh, shows itself through giving, right? Our offering is our worshipful response to the gospel. When we put money in the baskets, when they go by, um, it's actually a token, um, it's a real token, um, but it's a token of our offering ourselves. We're offering ourselves to God, uh, all we are and everything we have. He made us. We're his. Everything that we have comes from him. Uh, our great salvation is all by his grace. It's freely given to us in Christ. So in response, uh, we give ourselves to him. We set our lives at his feet. We set our resources at his feet to do with as he will. And there's a quote at the beginning of the bulletin from Randy Alcorn. He has a book uh, called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's a pretty good little book. Um, but he says, giving does not border on worship, right? It's not just some kind of augmentary, uh, uh, augmentary, <laughs> uh, auxiliary thing that we do uh, to keep things going around here. It's, it's, he says, giving does not border on worship. It is worship. Every bit as much as praying or singing a hymn of praise. 
Thanksgiving is worship. So um, we see that in our text this morning in Philippians 4, 10 through 20. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about how our giving is worship, how it's a response to God's grace. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we come to your word, this is um, a topic that's sometimes difficult for us to think about. Sometimes we don't want to be confronted with uh, thoughts or teaching on uh, giving. Sometimes um, I, I don't want to teach on giving. And, um, but we know it's your word, and it's important to us, and it's true. And it has to do with our relationship with you and the way that we reflect who you are in the world. And so we pray that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your teaching uh, with gladness and to be changed into the likeness of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so, um, like I said, we'll probably bounce around the scriptures a little bit. We, um, we could turn to Acts chapter 2. I mean, you don't have to turn there. You can just follow along with me. But um, in Acts chapter 2, you have a picture, you have a, a summary there at the end of the chapter of uh, what life was like in the early church as the church was forming uh, around the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit uh, filling the people to, to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to live out the community of faith. Um, you have a summary that uh, Luke provides actually a, a few types of this summary throughout his, uh, his book Acts. But in Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And um, you actually take quite a bit of what we do in worship out of those four things. But um, the, the word fellowship there, um, it's this word maybe you're familiar with, the, the Greek word kinonia, koinonia, however uh, you would pronounce it. But um, a lot of times we think primarily of it in terms of a participation of fellowship, right? Um, hanging out with each other, enjoying relationships. That word is also translated sharing, right? Um, and so um, it's descriptive of the fact that um, what actually comes just a verse or two later after uh, verse 42 is, um, is that the, the 
church, the early church was sharing everything that they had so that nobody had any need, right? And that's represented in that word fellowship. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul writes this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, so it's Sunday, the Lord's Day, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So uh, giving of gifts for support of the saints, for the work of the ministry, is, um, is not just something that's described in the New Testament as the common practice of the church. It's actually prescribed, right? Uh, it's actually commanded explicitly as a practice to be observed on the Lord's Day. Right, end of sermon. There you go. <laughs> uh, or did you want to hear more about this? <laughs> Um, I mean, if you're anything like me, you've got mixed feelings about sermons on giving. Um, I think we think it's my money, it's my business. What is that? It's that like KGW news uh, segment. Your money, your business. <laughs> right? Hands off. Um, but Jesus made people really uncomfortable with how much he talked about money and, uh, and our allegiance to it, our dependence on it as an idol. Uh, so, I mean, Jesus is the one who who does this, um, so maybe humor me as I try to be a little bit more like Jesus um, in this way. But first, kind of on the other hand, um, I think I can commend you like Paul commends the Philippian church uh, throughout this letter, actually. This letter is a letter of joy, right? And it's a thankful response that he's having to the fact that they've sent gifts uh, to him to supply his needs. Uh, he says in uh, chapter 1, just at the beginning of the letter, <clears throat> he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, your, your kinonia, your fellowship, your sharing uh, in the gospel from the first day until now, right? Because you've been giving to the work of the ministry of the gospel. Uh, I thank God. And I'm sure of this, he continues, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So um, the Philippians uh, gave to, his, to support his gospel ministry once and again. We saw that in, our, uh, in chapter 4. Um, and I think that that's, um, I think you're like that. Uh, I don't see the numbers on who gives what precisely, um, but the report is that uh, you're, you're better than average givers, right, uh, for, for Americans. So good job. Um, actually, I, I've been ministered to, uh, as well as others in our congregation by your generosity. So um, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, I think we can all stand to grow in our understanding of the significance of giving as worship. Um, so, so generally speaking, uh, American Christians are among the wealthiest Christians in the history of the, of the world, right? Um, and we... Um, we give away only a small fraction of our income. Uh, so why is that? Um, it's clearly not a financial problem. We've got the money. We could probably live on less money than we make. Um, we could give away money and still be living at a, a pretty high level, right? Um, it's not a financial problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. It's a worship problem, right? We love money. And we love the stuff that money gets us. And Jesus calls, uh, calls us out on this. Uh, he says in Matthew 6, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, In our rebellion against God, in our search for autonomy from God, we have given ourselves to uh, false gods. We've let them master us, and one of the big ones is money. We serve it. We work hard for it. We adore it and um, obsess about it. We, we obsess about its gifts to us. We derive security from money and um, we depend on it for our needs. Um, we exalt money to the status of master and lord. Ultimately, we do this because we actually think it's more manageable than the one true God as master and lord. Uh, we don't want the one true God to be our Lord because we definitely can't manage him. And in fact, um, we suspect that we're in big trouble with him if we think about it, right? Uh, we, we, it's really hard for us to believe that we will be happy. Uh, it, it's really hard for us to believe that we'll even just survive if we give away the first and the best of all of our income, right? We cannot believe that God will provide for our needs better than the numbers on those bank statements, so we don't give uh, because we don't worship God rightly. We worship money. Um, instead of worshiping God and giving our money, uh, we withhold and we protect and we hoard and we indulge ourselves and we conven- conveniently forget to bring our checkbooks on Sundays. Um, it's actually strange that the, the offering is the part of the service that requires the most advanced preparation, right? You could come and show up and participate in everything else, um, but if you don't think about it in advance, you're probably not going to participate in the offering, right? Um, or we wait and see how the month pans out, whether we'll have anything left over after all of our other expenses and, and things are met. Um, or it slips our minds. We just we allocate the money elsewhere before we think about um, worship. And God says in Malachi 3 that, um, that we rob him when we do that, right? We rob God of the glory that's due his name as the master and the Lord by withholding our offerings, by, by treating our money as our master and our Lord. Um, but giving, Christian giving, is worship, right? And the refusal to give is stealing worship from God and ascribing it to something that uh, we feel is more precious, more valuable, more worthy. Um, And Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer said, Alas for our indolence, which which appears in this, that while God invites us with so much kindness to the honor of priesthood, and even puts sacrifices in our hands, we nevertheless do not sacrifice to him. For the altars on which sacrifices from our resources ought to be presented are the poor and the servants of Christ. To the neglect of these, some squander their resources on every kind of luxury, Others upon the palate, others upon immodest attire, others upon magnificent dwellings. So, um, the answer to the problem is not to give out of feelings of guilt, right? That's not the answer to the problem. And I'm sorry if I've given you that impression so far that uh, that you would have thought, oh man, yeah, I guess I should give more. I will give more. Um, 
That's, that's not the answer to the problem. And you're not to give offerings in church in order to, in any way, buy God's favor, right? Think that God won't be happy with you unless you actually do bring a check this week, right? That's not it at all. That's not, um, that's not what our worship is. Remember, our, our worship is always a response. It's always a response to God's favor, which has freely been given to us already, once and for all, poured out on us, uh, in Christ. So just like the rest of our worship, giving is to be such a response. It's faith's response to God's grace. That's what um, Paul describes the Philippians gift to him as being. So uh, let's look a little more closely at the text. Uh, he says that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, right? They gave to him, he rejoiced in the Lord, because this is a demonstration of his grace at work in their lives. It's, a, it's the fruit of their faith, he says, their response to God's grace. Um, ultimately, he credits God with the Philippians' generosity, and he rejoices in the Lord. And he says in verse 17 and 18, not that I seek the gift. It's not, it's not the money that I want, right? Uh, I'm fine, he says, the, the whole first paragraph. I'm content. I've learned if I have very little or if I have a lot, I'm fine because Christ strengthens me. It's not the money, right? It's not the money that I'm after. Not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit, right? I love to see this fruit born in your life. It's a fruit of faith as a response to the gospel. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So their gift to him, the Philippians gave in support of his ministry, and God's word says that it was a gift to God. It was a pleasing offering to God. The language there. Um, uh, we saw it in our Old Testament reading, Numbers 15, right? All of these things that you burn on the altar, that you give uh, to God, they're a, a pleasing aroma, right? Uh, Gordon Fee says that the imagery is that of the burnt offering, which was understood as a fragrant offering to God. The picture is that of the aroma of the sacrificial fire wafting heaven, heavenward into God's nostrils, as it were, right? Um, it's symbolic language, um, but in Hebrews 13, the writer says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? So this sacrificial worship offering language with regard to sharing what we have, to, um, to giving of gifts and offerings. Paul's basically saying, I'm, I'm really excited for you. I rejoice in the Lord because your faith has shown itself through your worshipful giving to the glory of God. Philippians um, uh, are actually commended throughout the New Testament. They, they had a habit of giving even when it hurt them to do so. Right? Paul's talking about them to the Corinthians. In um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia, which is where Philippi is. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And that's a beautiful picture, that's a beautiful testimony of the church's love for the Lord, uh, and then for his people, the saints, for his mission in the world, for the kingdom uh, advancing through gospel ministry. I, 
Isn't that beautiful? I mean, don't you want to be more like this? Um, like the Philippians are being described here in 2 Corinthians 8. How does severe affliction plus extreme poverty equal a wealth of generosity? Right? How do we become people like that? What can move us to sacrificially give in our worship to God, even if it, it really hurts us to give, even if, even if we don't have much to give in the beginning, right? to give and it, and it become a wealth of generosity? How can we be like that? The answer is in our text. It's in Believing, verse 19, where Paul says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We fear that giving away our resources will diminish us, take away our ability to be happy. It'll leave us nothing for our own needs. That's our fear. But God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's language that it should blow our minds, Right? Um, riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. He owns everything, right? And not only the world, uh, he owns the heavens as well. And, and in 1 Kings um, chapter 8, Solomon's praying, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. So his... His are glorious riches. His are immeasurable riches. His are unsearchable riches and true riches. Right? Riches of love, riches of kindness, riches of joy and eternal life and divine communion. And Jesus Christ is, um, is very God of very God, as the creed puts it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. All splendor and beauty and glory not only belong to him, they have their origin in him. And they will return to him. Apart from him, there are no true riches. The heavens are only rich because he's there. And were he gone from there, the ancient heavens would darken and fade. But his riches, the riches in glory in Christ according to which he's going to supply every need of yours. His riches will never fade because he is eternal, because he is perfect, because he is full in his magnificence and glory. And out of his wealth, then, he supplies every need of yours. I mean, do you believe that? What's the proof that God will supply every need of yours in Christ? Do you need more proof than a bloody cross? Do you need more proof than an empty tomb? I mean, the bloody cross, because it's where Jesus Christ poured out all of his riches for the sake of those who believe in him to supply their need. He says in, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, again, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. His life for yours, his death for yours, his eternal glory for yours. 
He was willing to give everything, even be abandoned by his father to supply every need of yours according to his riches. Paul again writes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He didn't spare his own son. What could be more precious to God that he would hold back from you? He's going to supply all your need. And the empty tomb is proof of God's ability to provide for every need because this same Jesus conquered death, right? He took up his life again forever. He ascended into the unassailable heavens. He assumed lordship over all the heavens and the earth in order to bless those who call upon his name. So he's willing and he's able to supply every need of yours according to his riches. And in the most important sense, he's already done it, right? He's He's already supplied forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation through Christ uh, to those who believe, and he will continue to take care of you forever. As he said, uh, as Paul said, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God is at work in you. He's at work in you to form Christ in you, right? To fashion you more and more after the likeness of his Son, who was supremely, sacrificially generous, right? To fashion you more and more into the likeness of Christ, which means transforming you into a living sacrifice of praise, right? He's making you into a person who fully offers your whole life, everything that you are, everything that you have, as a testimony to his grace and his glory, right? God says, trust me with your life and watch how I take care of you. Right? Give up your other gods and see that I'm a gracious and loving God who gives the, the precious life of his own son for you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and see if I'll not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, says in Malachi 3. In John 6, Jesus said, Give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So this is not to say... This is not to say, give so that God will love you, so that he'll owe you, so that he'll give back to you, right? If you really put it out there, uh, then as a response to that uh, generosity, God will love you. That's not what the text is saying. We love God because he first loved us, and he gave his son for us. We worship God because our hearts are assured of his goodwill to us, his provision for us according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We give because he gave. So our giving is a way to imitate our Father in heaven who gives freely. Our giving is a way to turn away from our security that's derived in earthly treasures to place our full faith and trust in God, even, even as Jesus taught us not to be anxious about material needs, but to trust our Father's love and his, and his care for us, to seek his kingdom first. Our giving is a way to do that. Our giving is a tangible way for us to respond to God's abundant provision to us with thanksgiving and praise, to truly acknowledge him as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Giving is a way to demonstrate our supreme contentment in God, like Paul, right, who had learned to be content in any situation because he was strengthened by Christ. Giving is a way to sacrifice precious things 
We don't use that word, that, that language of sacrifice kind of as the atoning sacrifice. If you give this, God won't be angry with you anymore. We use it as a representative of this is, this is me giving up something precious, something that otherwise would be dear and valuable to me um, to show our God that we love him more than these things. To honor him as better and more worthy of our affection than anything. So our offering during worship is symbolic of our entire lives given to the Lord. And we, we usually don't call much attention to that part of our service, but it's, it's important uh, for us to think about it. We, we give ourselves and our resources to him happily and cheerfully, right? Because unimaginable promises are ours because of his grace to us. And that's why in our liturgy, the, um, you see them together, the offering and the doxology are linked, right? They're, they're put together. We sing praise to God from whom all blessings flow as we present our offerings to him, right? And some of you, um, some of you might know Joel Scotchler. He's an elder over in town, our sister church in Portland, and uh, he's a great guy. He he loves to talk uh, about everything that he's experienced, um, but he loves to talk particularly, I've heard this story a few times from him, about um, giving being worship uh, and him learning that, how every week we corporately engage in this element together. And he says that he used to think that he was just obligated to give the tithe. And so whenever he got his paycheck, you know, that Sunday, he'd put in his tithe, his 10%, right? He'd, he'd give. Um, but then he realized that that meant that you know, Sundays after he got paid, he would participate in every element of worship. But then the Sundays that he didn't get paid, he wouldn't participate in the offering, right? Um, so he found actually a lot of new joy in participating every week, even though it meant, you know, I give my tithe one week, and then I just give a couple bucks or whatever, you know, uh, according to his need, right? According to how he prospers. He just gives a little bit every Sunday, um, rather than only every once in a while. And likewise, every week, um, we should use the offering time to respond to God's grace to us, to give ourselves, to lay ourselves at his feet, to do with as he will. Tim Keller says that they use this time in, in his church in Manhattan uh, to ask, what has God been saying to me, and what should I do about it? What has God been saying to me? during the service or in my life, through the word? What has God been saying to me and what should I do about it? And the incredible thing is that God uses our gifts to advance his kingdom, right? Giving um, is a matter of our worship to God, but it's not only a matter of the way that we feel about God. It's not only a matter of our heart's affections being expressed for God. Giving is a way to meet others' needs, which honors God. Giving is a way even actually to do evangelism, which honors God. Um, <clears throat> giving is evangelistic. And I'm going to go back to that, um, that summary of church life in Acts chapter 2. Read a little bit more of it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad 
and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, Christians sharing with one another, it's kind of the bulk of the focus of that section. And it's attractive to outsiders, right? The Lord added to their number day by day. They had favor with all men because, uh, because they can see the impact of God's grace on us, right? Through our generosity, through our love for one another. Christian giving is a beautiful thing, especially it seems when it goes to alleviate the needs of the poor who are among us. So we do things like our monthly diaconal offering on, on Mercy Sunday where we give um, kind of above and beyond uh, our regular budget to be able to supply for the needs of those first who are in, uh, in the body of Christ, in our church, who might have needs, and then um, whatever we can do for all people everywhere uh, who are in need, right? And now, um, again, remind you, we're making a small change to that special offering, um, in order to call just a little more attention to it, right? That's not, um, it's not to make it a big show. It's not so that everybody can see um, how much you give or whatever, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but it should be something visible. It should be something that we do as a church that's visible so that it can be attractive to people. And again, historically, uh, several reformed liturgies, which means the order of service practiced by churches like ours uh, the last several hundred years uh, have called such an offering alms or almsgiving, uh, which comes from the Greek word for mercy. Uh, it comes from the Greek for mercy, and it's a special offering dedicated to the poor, which is what we've been doing all along without even knowing it to, uh, with, our, um, with our diagonal offering. So we're going to change the name of it to the giving of alms just to reflect a little more connection, actually, to the history of the church. And uh, we're going to place it in a different point in the service. Again, historically, um, Reformed churches have often linked alms to communion, which actually reflects that Greek word kinonia, fellowship, communion, uh, which also means sharing. Right? So it's uniting the concepts of communion and giving under the same banner. It's the banner of love. Right? Um, God's love to us looks like mercy, and our response uh, expresses mercy. So, um, so on Mercy Sundays, we're going to have a little box in the back of the sanctuary um, for you to place your alms during communion. It's not up front so that everybody has to see you. You can do it secretly. Um, if, you're, if you're getting in line for communion to come down the front, um, don't think of it as this is what you've got to pay. Uh, for your place at the table, right? Maybe, maybe as you're looping around to the back afterwards, you pay as a response to the free grace that uh, God has given you. Uh, and those, those offerings will continue to fuel our diaconal fund as they have. Are you content with Christ? Is he enough? With your um, Heavenly Father's care for you, is that enough? You content with the lavishing of glorious riches on you through the Savior? Will you live then a life of costly devotion to Him? A life of sacrificial worship, a beautiful life of mercy and generosity in response to the gospel. John Calvin says, What better thing can be desired than that our acts of kindness 
should be sacred offerings which God receives from our hands and takes pleasure in their sweet odor. What better thing? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.